We are, if you are visiting this morning, we are beginning our walk through the distinction between law and gospel, or that will materialize itself beginning next week in studying the Ten Commandments. And we'll be looking at commandment uh, number one next week. This morning I get to introduce, I was with you two weeks ago, and I gave a, what I guess I now will call a preview. And then the preview is now leading to an introduction. And then next week we'll begin with commandment number one on how does a Christian relate to the Ten Commandments. It'd be interesting. I won't do it. Don't worry. I'm just labeling it interesting. If I was to ask who could stand up here and if we could put together collectively the Ten Commandments in order. Many of us might not. Exactly. Thank you, Caleb. I won't call on you for the first one. That's right. So we have a need, don't we? I thought that I would begin our time together on the Ten Commandments by affirming for you uh, David's spirit toward them. That is the law of the Lord. I'll read it for you. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I'm hoping by way of reading this for you as you're hearing it, that your heart too, through our study of the Ten Commandments and our relationship where we stand in Christ to the Ten Commandments will also move your heart and your mind, your soul, into joining with David to say, indeed, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, this is great. They're right. That's great. They're right. It's true. Blessed be the Lord. And as a result of being right, look in verse 8, they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. A couple of weeks ago, as I was speaking to you, as I was getting ready for church and walking out the door, I was given an introduction free of charge by the television. I was able to maximize that introduction just on a whim. I happened to turn on the TV and there was my introduction. This week I was supplied yet an, an, another anecdotal introduction by my own family. We were riding in the car. A discussion was taking place in the back. Dad was concerned about the development of the conversation. So I spoke back. I'm concerned about what's going on in the back. What's taking place? Well, so-and-so is breaking one of the commandments. I have a pad of paper and a pencil. They're angry with me because I won't give it to them. I told them, stop. Breaking the commandment. So I said to them, 
so-and-so, why are you breaking the commandment? Why are you coveting your neighbor's goods? The one breaking the commandment began to cry out and sob. Now I've given it away. And said, there's nothing I can do. I have broken the commandment. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? How we hear law, how we think of justification, how the law is still serving a child according to its design by the work of God, that it would lead us to Christ. Intuitively, wired for law, a child of Adam hears you broke the law. How did that serve? Despair. Awesome. Then that's its purpose and function by the design of God to lead us unto Christ. I've, there's nothing I can do. I've broken the commandment. Ha! Huh? Wait a minute. There's also gospel. These two things aren't the same. Do you see how it would have destroyed a life? I said, there's something you can do. Do better. Stop coveting. Then I've led that person to despair. Because they can't stop coveting. Neither can you. Neither can I. We can't do better. We must believe the gospel. This is a distinction between law and gospel. This is how law serves according to its natural function, to lead us to Christ. So many of us have probably come to that point where we say, I understand that. Then the second part How then do we come back to the law, or do we? It was an early question on Martin Luther's mind. It's interesting. If I take you back, I don't know, what is that, um, mid-16th century, it's quite telling where we are in the 21st century. Martin Luther, the reformer, says this, quote, I fear that after our time, okay, so long time ago, The right handling of the law will become a lost art. Even now, although we continually explain the separate functions of the law and gospel, we have those among us who do not understand how the law should be used. What will it be like when we are dead and gone? Nineteen seventy, I take you to nineteen seventy, so we're moving forward. Answering Luther's question, perhaps a little bit, and still some of us in this room weren't around in nineteen seventy. Some John Murray writing in nineteen seventy says this in answer to Martin Luther's question of I wonder what it'll be like when we're dead and gone. 
It says, the statement of such, that is an affirmation of the role of the law in the life of the Christian. If I were to say to you, the law still serves and functions in your life as a believer. The Ten Commandments matter to you. If I were to say that, this is what Murray says in following Luther some nearly 400 years later. The statement of such a position is exceedingly distasteful to many of modern thought, both within and without the evangelical family. It is agreed that the conception of an externally revealed and imposed code of duty, norm of absolute right thinking, thought and conduct is entirely out of accord with the liberty and spontaneity of the Christian life. We are told that conformity to the will of God must come from within. And therefore, any stipulation or prescription from without in the form of well-defined precepts is wholly alien to the spirit of the gospel. He concludes, it is inconsistent, they say, with the spirit of the gospel and the principle of love. In some, they suggest, do not speak of law, nor of moral precept, nor of code of morals. Speak to me only the law of love. That is 1970. I take you back in time to Theodore Beza. Another reformer, same era, as belonging to that of Martin Luther. And that is, he suggests this. And this is where we're heading together as a church family in our study. According to Beza, he writes this, ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. We know this to be true because we consider Beza's comments reflect the truth present that the problem that you might have now, the problem I might have right now, the problem within the church right now about law and gospel is not new. That is, in the mid-16th century, again, he would say, the principal problem The principal abuse within the church is a confusion between law and gospel. It's an abuse. Law is leveraged, not according to the way it was intended to be used, but it's leveraged to hurt and wound. It's an abuse. We know this to be the case then, and then we go all the way back to the New Testament. This is principally one of what things that Paul wrestled with in his own ministry, isn't it? I want to take you there to think about three principal confusions surrounding the distinction between law and gospel. So we've gone through the 16th century down now to the 1st century to see, indeed, this is not new. The struggle you have, the struggle the church presently has, the struggle the church had in the mid-16th century, that is, with the Reformation, all the way to the 1st century. It has always been a point of leverage and abuse to confuse law and gospel. And the consequence of confusion is heartbreaking. The guilt that is heaped up 
I can't do anything. I broke the law. You're right. Well, there is a pathway to freedom. How, 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 how? Tell me. I'm sobbing in the back of this car. Tell me how. Don't do it next time. Countenance falls. Heart is broken. That's it. Don't do it next time. That's abuse. And we all know as parents or teachers of any kind, we all know that external conformity to law standard is not really keeping the heart of the law anyway, is it? It's not in stride with its spirit. Yet indeed, it can motivate while it destroys. This is how Paul spoke of the law and gospel being confused in the New Testament. Turn with me to Romans 6, if you would, please. So back from Psalms to Romans 6, to look at three specific confusions between law and gospel. This is our introduction, as I said, to the discussion of law and gospel as we will look at the law of the Ten Commandments. There are three points of confusion regarding law and gospel that I want to highlight in our time this morning together. Confusion number one, if you want to note this, jot this down, or consider it from Romans 6, as we'll see in a moment. Confusion number one is that gospel promotes sin. This is confusion number one about the role of gospel in the life of the church and the life of individuals and the role of law in the life of the church or the life of individuals. Confusion number one. If we go from Theodore Beza, which I read for you, this is a principal manner of abuse in the church. And it's not new then. We find it in the first century as Paul is in his ministry correcting the errors of mishandling law and gospel. He's doing so here in Romans 6. And I would cite for you that the confusion number one is that gospel promotes sin. Let me read the text for you if you're just looking along by way of introduction. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as Paul is supplying the question and answer as he has explained the truths of the gospel from chapter 1 through chapter 5. And now look at his argument beginning in verse 1 in light of this confusion of gospel promoting sin. What shall we say then to this gospel that I have spoken forth, as Paul is saying? What shall we say then to these things? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we? So, if I like the sin, God likes to forgive, do we have a great relationship? I'll continue my part, I know he'll continue his part, and things will work out. Is this how we're supposed to act now that we've been forgiven, now that we have been shown grace? Should we just continue to sin that grace might abound, that his glory might be maximized? Is this how we ought to respond? And Paul affirms, by no means. How can we, and here he begins to explain the gospel, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Confusion number one, what shall we say then? 
gospel promotes sin. It's a confusion, number one. And Paul is saying that indeed is not the case. We were buried with him in a baptism. We were raised in newness of life that we might therefore walk in newness of life. A life of obedience. A life of new creation. Too much gospel, they say. I was at college. Um, Well, I went to college. And during that time while I was in college, we had a controversy at the college, which was a very interesting time for me to be able to witness law and gospel and its um, explosion. While I was at college, there was a professor who uh, came to the college. He was hired during that time to teach um, Christian theology. I started having repeated courses with this individual, and I found out that I was learning absolutely nothing, except I was learning one of the most significant things that I ought to meditate on forever. Weird how that's kind of true. It was absolutely nothing, but it was everything. It was, it was an odd situation. It, we would be given tests, and if you could write out like the meaning of the gospel, you could write it down and leave. You don't have to take the test. He started saying this, and it's kind of like Romans 6 1. He started looking at the audience, and he had a concern for us as students in this institution. I don't know, maybe it was our countenance. He had a concern. So he started to say this phrase that has stuck with me for a long time. Now that I'm going to recite it to you, I'm probably going to forget it. It did stick with me for a long time. Um, To know is to love. To love is to obey. I'm not kidding you. If you could write that, you could leave. See, it seems so so simple, doesn't it? Like, well, and then I'd go to another class and be like, okay, we're really going to get into the issue here in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, guys, to know is to love. To love is to obey. See, and you're thinking, that sounds fine. Okay, so, so to know the Lord as he is to be known, as he is revealed in Holy Scripture, to know he who has lived, died, been buried, and been raised, and is coming again, to know him as he is known, I will fall in love with that which I have come to know. I will love that. That is, as he is revealed, he is lovely. He will be loved. It must be taken in the mind. You must know him. And as you know him, you will love him. And as you love him, you will obey him. It will be your delight. Now you think, okay, that, that this seems to make sense. To know is to love, to love is to obey. At that time, the college gave rise to a charge called antinomianism. It's a charge called, you don't believe in any form of standard of conduct for law. You must not believe in any law. And it was principally targeted at, guess who? Not me. Not me. The professor. He started to have a following on campus. I don't know if you were ever at college, graduate school, and there was a certain individual, and he had kind of the charisma that kind of garnished a body of students that were all hail the chief, and this individual kind of, and, and we all sat at his feet like Gamaliel for Paul, you know, like, tell me everything. I'll write it all down, put it in tonight, memorize it, 
and be like you tomorrow. He, he kind of began to have that movement about him in the college and that gave way to a charge where he had to appear before the faculty and the president because he must not believe in the law. Because people were believing the gospel. He really believed that if you knew the Lord, you will love him. For he is himself lovely. And as you love him, you will obey him. It will be your delight to do so. That's going to promote sin. That's too much freedom. How do we know that they'll obey becomes the concern, right? That's what was a matter at Rome in chapter 6. What should we say to this freedom? Let's sin. That grace might abound. This is the concern. You start preaching just no love, and then maybe obedience will occur. How do you guarantee obedience will occur? Standards, laws, principles, moral code, conduct, duty. He was indicative. No, don't you see? It will occur because they will love him, and that will be their delight to obey him. During that time, it got quite wild. We received public apologies, so on and so forth, as we watched a public execution occur in front of us. And then an interesting time on campus because it became this discussion of law and gospel. And then when he was removed, it became a student body issue of law versus gospel. Because confusion number one surrounding the role of the law and the gospel is that too much gospel will create too much freedom. And freedom will give way to sin. An interesting thought along these lines. When that was the charge to Paul in Romans 6, did you notice what he said? Not yet because I haven't read it. So you didn't notice? But the charge to the gospel isn't that you believe too much. It's that you believe too little about it. That's what he was telling us. To know is to love. To love is to obey. In order to correct behavior, it isn't because they believe too much. The gospel is freedom. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. If that's the response, guess what? The charge isn't they believe the freedom of the gospel. They don't believe too much. They believe too little. They don't find him lovely enough to obey. So what's the corrective measure? Guess what? Paul says in Romans 6, more gospel. This curbs sin. Look at the text as I read for you beginning in verse 5. You notice in verse 1, there's the charge. He's antinomian. He must not believe in any kind of law or standard or righteousness. What is his response? All right, well, let me explain the law. No, verse 5. You must know the gospel. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. See, to know is to love. To love is to obey. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This is gospel. So that we no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the gospel. For one who has died has been set free from sinning. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Did you see? He had a perfect time to insert more law, didn't he? This is getting out of hand. What should we do? I'll rein it in. He expounded upon the gospel. To truly know is truly love. To truly love is truly obey. One citation, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, perhaps you have heard of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, and I think that our hearts will resonate with this. He says, when I thought God was hard, do you sometimes think that? When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. Isn't that the way the heart responds? I broke the commandment. There's nothing I can do. You're exactly right. You broke the commandment. Well, man, forget about this. I'm just going to keep breaking the commandments. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I had ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my eternal good. Gospel doesn't promote sin. Confusion number one. So, to, in order to kind of deal with the other issue, we come in with confusion of law and gospel number two. Confusion number two is, we'll substitute then. If the gospel promotes sin, we'll substitute the gospel for the law. Confusion number two. Isn't that the standard kind of uh, Christian uh, uh, DNA? We pendulum swing. Yeah. I heard a word over here. I saw a video on YouTube. I'm over here now. I entered into this discussion. I'm over here now. Because we just we got to rein this thing in. So we tend to... So it's in the DNA, isn't it? It's nothing new. So we don't like this sense of, ah, I can't get my arms around it. I better just correct it with more law, substitute gospel for law. This is confusion number two. If you'll look with me over at Galatians chapter 2, as Paul is dealing with this, go forward from Romans to Galatians and look with me at chapter 2 where there is this substitution of law for gospel. 
Confusion number two is Paul is dealing with the proper function of law and the proper function of the gospel in the life of God's people. Do not confuse or substitute law for gospel. Chapter 2 of Galatians, look with me just briefly at this little text here of chapter, of chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. We'll come back and deal with another element of confusion from this very same text. But beginning in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. To be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, look at the universal negative in case you think maybe you're not applied here in the text. Universal negative. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There it is. Everybody in here, that's us. We're here. Not one of us, you, myself, no one here, no one universally that has been born into this earth will achieve justification. That is righteous standing before God by obeying external law code. You can't do it. We know positively that no one will achieve righteousness by law code in obedience. Period. You cannot substitute law for the gospel. It won't work. No one will be justified before God if we do that. Yet, I dare say to you, as I spoke before, if we did do it, it would promote some good preaching. And we pack this place out in a heartbeat if we would just substitute law for gospel. Because you think you want gospel. But the sinner inside wants law. If I speak of external code, duty and conduct, seven steps, four good thoughts to achieve a better you tomorrow, I will finally, for the first time, be considered relevant and my messages applicable. Finally, for the first time, the church will be speaking to you. If I could just give you more law. It resonates with our sin. It resonates with our idolatry. It resonates with our self-centered arrogance. I can achieve my own bootstrap theology tells me. I can ascend to the heavens. The church has struggled with this since the first century. The church has struggled with this since Adam. And Paul is saying, We know. Do not substitute the law. It might make for sweet application, but don't do it. I could offer my family member a way to feel better immediately by saying, don't do it next time. Don't covet. Just stop. All right. I will. I broke the commandment. There's nothing I can do. Yes, there is. Again, don't do it next time. All right. Promise, God's honor, right? That's what we do. I swear to it, I won't next time. And we do that in little law codes all throughout our life. Scout's honor this time, I'm not, I, I'm going to, and it makes us feel like we're going to be all right. 
But instead we ask, there, we affirm, there's nothing you can do. Repent and pray. Don't substitute law for gospel. So if Paul says that no one is justified by the law, and also the gospel does not, if the confusion is, let me put these together for you. If we cannot find a life of obedience in the gospel, too much gospel gives way to disobedience and too much freedom, and all the teenagers are going crazy because of this pronouncement of the gospel. If it promotes sin, and secondly, confusion number two is, neither can we find a life of freedom through the law. What must we do but find a better way, right? So we have the pendulum. Here we go. Um, Over here, uh, too much gospel promotes sin. Rein it in. We don't rein it in. We swing way over here in confusion number two in the church at Galatia, and we substitute law for gospel to make sure that nobody gets out of line. Now we come along, and most of the preaching you're going to hear today, or the way in which we've kind of sophisticated the situation, we have brought the pendulum to the middle because we have found a third pathway that seems to be comforting. And that is, let's just mix the two. Let's do a little dicing, and, and, and uh, I don't even know cook terminology. I cook nothing. Let, let, let's sprinkle uh, and dash a little bit of this and a little bit of that and make our own mixture of law and gospel. Let's take that which we know. God is saying, hey, the teenager's getting crazy over here. Let's rein it in. Okay, that's fine. Application, law. Good, we got them back. Okay, now it's getting too, too hard on them. Let's give them a, a little dose of, of gospel, just enough to make them feel better. Okay, great. And we're, uh, law, gospel, law, gospel. We're just mixing them. So it is. Conventional wisdom today among many Christians is this, quote, we must find the right balance between law and gospel so that we don't fall into either manure pile, that of legalism or license. I hope you didn't think that was a good idea. By right balance, so we're not here, we're not here, we're right here. Right down the middle, there we are. Right balance simply means mixture, doesn't it? Because is there a recipe book in the Bible for just the right amounts? Which ones matter more than the other ones? Is music permissible? Holding hands isn't. Movie going is okay. Social drinking isn't. What else is there out there that might tempt somebody? Let's figure out the percentages and let's stack them appropriately so that we can guarantee they'll be godly. Confusion number three, mix them. Mix law and gospel. If this is the right pathway forward, I would ask you, I would ask anyone that would say something like, so that we don't fall into either manure pile, that of legalism or license, I would suggest that a mixture is indeed a manure pile. How do we find the right balance? Does the New Testament tell us what the right balance is for your children, for my children, for one another, for our own conscience and our life lived before the face of God? Does Scripture give us the ingredients of right balance? No, it doesn't. Scripture never in the New Testament calls us to discern the right balance between law and gospel. We will hear it called the victorious Christian life, perhaps. How are you to go from being kind of an okay Christian to a real Christian? How are you going to hit that plateau? How are you going to get there? Well, to live the victorious Christian life 
is to have the proper balance of law and gospel. This is not found in the right mixture of command and promise. So someone would stand up here and I would say, okay, I talked to that person last week. You know what they need? You know what they need? They need this one, this commandment now. I'm going to leverage commandment. That will strengthen them. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to give them, this person over here, I'm just going to give them gospel. And I'm going to be in control of dispensing law and gospel. And I'm going to find the right balance of mixing the two together. The New Testament nowhere challenges us. Believers, find the right balance. Find the right mixture. If you're given way to sin, it's, be, it's not because you believe something. It's because you don't believe something in the gospel. That is, once again, Luther warned against it this way. Quote, it seems a small matter to mingle law and gospel. A small matter. It's, you know... It seems to be a small matter to mingle law and gospel, to mingle faith and works, but it creates more mischief than man's brain can conceive. To mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, it cuts out Christ altogether. Let me show you from Galatians 2 how that is the case. Look with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 now, where this is the issue of mixing Confusion number three, mixing law and gospel together. Verse 11, look at Paul's language. But when Cephas came to Antioch, that is Peter, fellow apostle, I opposed him to his face. Whoa. Look at why. Because he stood condemned. Do you see, what, what, did, what did Luther just say? It seems just a little, what did he call it? A small matter to mingle law and gospel. To mingle faith and works. Not a big deal. We're just trying to keep some accountability. Look at Paul's language. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, an issue of law and gospel. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, by the way, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You live in freedom. You live in gospel. And you're compelling others to live by law? So that so much even a bystander, Barnabas, gets caught up in your confusion and your mixture of law and gospel and acts the part with you of hypocrisy. 
Look at the rest of the text, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, Peter, everyone that's listening to me yell right now, this is Paul, I said to him before everybody, That everybody might know, not one of us will be justified by works of the law. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for absolutely no purpose. It seems a small matter to mingle law and gospel, faith and works, but it creates more mischief than man's brain can conceive. To mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace for Barnabas, carried away, but as Paul says, It cuts out Christ all together. He died for no purpose. One more quotation for you. I usually don't load my sermons with as many quotations, but by way of introduction to gather consensus of a conversation of where we are heading, Charles Spurgeon also warned about this perspective. Let's just dash and sprinkle A little bit of both. Roll it up with the right balance. Godliness. Spurgeon warned, There is no point which men make greater mistakes than on the relationship which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel. That was confusion number one. Others put gospel instead of the law. Confusion number two. And a certain class of uh, citizens maintains that the law and the gospel are mixed. Confusion number three, these men understand not the truth and are false teachers. You see, the New Testament nowhere instructs on finding the right balance between law and gospel. We must uphold the rightful use and function of both the law and and the gospel without substituting or ever confusing or mixing. Another citation from Holy Scripture, 1 Timothy 1.8. You don't have to turn there. I'll simply read it for you, a singular verse. Paul says to Timothy, now we know that the law, guess what? Do you know that text? We know that the law is good. If one uses it, Do you remember? 
lawfully according to its purpose and function. There's nothing wrong with the law of the Lord. Indeed, don't we agree with David? It is our delight. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is true. There's great reward in keeping them, and in it we are warned of unrighteousness. According to its rightful use, we are led to Christ. We affirm the law is good if one uses it lawfully to substitute, confuse, and mix is not a lawful use of the law itself, but to use it as a false teacher bringing confusion. So this is my final comment to you this morning as I introduce to you where we'll go for the Ten Commandments to indeed find our delight in the law of the Lord. What then is the rightful use and function of the law and of the gospel? That's what I'm saying. We must, we must explore. We must gather. We must apply the rightful function of the law and the gospel. The question is, well, then what do you think is the rightful function of the law and of the gospel? I think a helpful, perhaps even better stated, I think a biblical answer comes from the Puritan Samuel Bolton. This is how I would understand the law and the gospel and their proper function and role in the life of the Christian, and this is how we'll go forward in our study and handling of the Ten Commandments. That is, quote, the law sends us to the gospel that we might be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire What is our duty in being justified? You see, you were redeemed by the blood of Christ from underneath the curse of the law. Galatians 3. Remember? He became a curse for us. Curse is anyone who's hanged on a tree. That is your boast. I'm crucified with him. I too will be raised with him. I walk in a new life like His, empowered by His Spirit. I'm redeemed from under the curse of the law. However, you are not redeemed from underneath its call to obey. So Christ says, if you love me, do you remember? Keep my commandments. To know is to love. To love is to obey.